You are listening to The Public Discourse, a podcast by the Baha'i Community of Canada's Office of Public Affairs. My name is Laura Friedman, and I'm excited to host this episode of the third season of The Public Discourse, produced by the Office of Public Affairs of the Baha'i Community of Canada. The theme of this podcast series is A Vision of Oneness, inspired by the centenary of the passing of Abdu'l-Baha, a central figure in the Baha'i faith who devoted his life to promoting the faith of his father. When Abdu'l-Baha visited Montreal in 1912, he addressed the relationship between oneness and justice in a number of his public talks. He said that with the appearance of justice, all humanity will appear as a members of one family, and every member of that family will be consecrated to cooperation and mutual assistance. I hope we can take this brief reflection as an inspiration for our conversation today. We have two guests who are going to help us to think about what we need to do as a society to champion the cause of justice and promote the oneness of humanity. Shane Jackson and Roshan Dinesh are joining us from the West Coast today. Hi to both of you. I'd like to invite each of you to briefly introduce yourselves and where you're coming from. Shane? Good morning. I'm here at my uh, studio at SpiritWorks Limited. Uh, we're on Squamish Nation territory here, so I have to acknowledge our wonderful hosts. Uh, I'm also Coast Salish. I'm from the community of Seashelt uh, on the Sunshine Coast. And my name is Shane Jackson, but I also carry the name uh, Ninewum, uh, which in our language means to advise or to help or to serve. It's a name I'm very, very proud of. Uh, and I also carry the name Salapam, which is my great grandfather's name. And he was a chief in our community. And he was also very much in, in tune with service. So I'm very proud of those names. And I, I use them uh, as graciously as I can. Um, in any event, uh, uh, thanks. Wonderful. Thank you. And Roshan? Yeah, I'm uh, coming to you from the territory of the Lekwungen speaking peoples, the uh, Songhees, Esquimalt, and Saanich uh, First Nations, uh, where Victoria, British Columbia has resided uh, within, and uh, very honored to be able to be here today and to uh, have a conversation with both of you about the uh, issues of justice and Indigenous peoples in this country. So wonderful to be here. Well, it's wonderful to have you both here, really. And Roshan, I'd actually like to start with you. You are a lawyer, a teacher, and a practitioner in the field of conflict resolution. And you've done a great deal of legal and policy work with Indigenous First Nations. So what have you learned from this work that has illuminated your understanding of the relationship between justice and oneness and equality in this country? Well, I mean, I guess... Uh... You know, I should start with coming from a place of admission of, you know, of a significant amount of, of ignorance about Indigenous peoples and Indigenous realities in this country. I was raised like I think many Canadians of my generation, knowing very little, learning very little uh, about the true history and reality of Canada. And so, you know, for the last 20 years, I've, you know, been very fortunate and and had the extreme privilege to be able to try to be of service to Indigenous peoples, to learn from them in their communities, to learn of their worldviews, their cultures, their spiritualities, to, you know, really see individuals and in communities of tremendous resilience. You know, Shane, who's here with us today, is an individual with a remarkable life story of 
of resilience, of, of tremendous uh, suffering and tremendous accomplishment as an artist and lawyer. And so, you know, I've learned just a, a tremendous amount as a human being, just from being able to uh, interact and immerse myself in, in trying to learn and, and getting out of the comfort zone that I was raised in about what this country means and what it represents and how we live our lives. But specifically as well to the question of the, uh, the role of justice and issues, you use the term oneness and, and unity, you know, it's a, it's a negative way to, to say it. But the reality is, is that most human beings and human societies, you know, we live and organize a lot of times our lives around fictions and not relationships with truth. And we all struggle constantly to be trying to organize our lives more and more about things that actually have reality and truth to them. And, you know, this country has been largely erected and structured itself and continues to function on, on a series of fictions and distance from the truth. You know, what I have learned more than anything is at the core of the true history of this country is uh, were two central ideas. Um, one was the idea of assimilation. One was, you know, a very social Darwinist, racist, colonial notion um, that the uh, reality and culture and spirituality and being an identity of Indigenous peoples needed to be removed. Um, and so that, you know, very racist foundation at the core of the country that led to the residential schools and the imposition of the Indian Act and all sorts of discriminatory and prejudice policies and realities, trying to break transmission of knowledge and systems of knowledge. The other idea that's been at the core of the history, the other fiction, is, of course, that this country, this land was empty when Europeans arrived. That's called different things, the doctrine of discovery, which dates back to the truth, terra nullius, the denial policy. But it was that idea that allowed for the economic uh, structures of this country to be built, was that fiction. And these are, you know, tremendously entrenched. And I think Canadians are only awakening now to how deeply, deeply entrenched at every level of our social system and social structures, these core foundational ideas are. And the reality is, is, you know, justice, and it's from that quote you mentioned at the beginning, justice, you know, if we talk about arcs of societies or arcs of history or arcs of anything as a movement from patterns of otherness to patterns more characterized by oneness of upholding uh, each other and our distinctiveness and the true connections and relations to each other, that moving of otherness to oneness, these patterns of otherness are so ingrained and in dressing them as a prerequisite to any form of oneness. You cannot talk about uh, unity or oneness or any of these dynamics without grappling first with the really systematic, transformative justice work that needs to be done. And that work is hard and it's painful and it requires extreme sacrifice and change in the economic, social and political structures of society. And frankly, we're not really grappling with that yet uh, as a society. We're only coming to realize uh, the depth of the problem, but we're not really grappling with the depths of the solutions. We're much more into performative acts of 
reconciliation, you know, the emotional and healing aspects of it, which are important, but those are not undoing uh, systemic patterns of injustice that have to be ingrained. So what I've really learned at the core of it is both ripping off uh, naivete and ignorance about the depths of the injustices that have to be addressed and really coming to understand that, you know, performative uh, and symbolic and dialogue about oneness and unity is really impoverished and empty without a much more robust reality at looking at what has to be transformed uh, on the justice side. So maybe uh, I'm sorry I talked too long there, but those are some of the things that jumped to mind. No, it's wonderful. I'm going to stay on the theme of justice, actually. Shane, um, when we think about justice, we often think about law, and you yourself are a lawyer. However, you now work in the area of indigenous arts and craftsmanship, and you have spoken out many times about the role of justice in artistic production. So how do you see the production of art as an area where you're promoting the cause of justice? Well, you know, in our culture, art, our artwork, it's, it's not like a written language. It's a written language. So there's this very intense and sophisticated symbolism mm -hmm. within it. These fictions that we've been living under in, in Canadian society and, and, you know, a lot of mostly Occidental societies have been affecting, you know, at least in North America and South America here, our Indigenous cultures. But, you know... <sighs> I think we've we've been removed from sort of our natural state in the sense like, you know, and I, I can speak personally in that I, I truly believe that, you know, in the beauty of the human soul, like the human spirit, you know, and it has a very strong spiritual component to it. I think people are generally like 99% of folks are 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 good inside and they want to do good and they want to unite and, 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 you know, and, and work with their fellow folks, you know, in, in, on this planet. I don't want to go too far off, off topic here, but, you know, if we look at it almost organically, there's these certain truths. And this is why I've, I've really put my hands up to Roshan because he speaks a lot about these, these fictions and truths. Truth necessitates justice. You know, people are good inside generally. They're good inside. They want to do the right thing. They want to live together in peace and harmony in a spiritual way. You know, truth makes that, it, it, it makes it necessary. You know, truth makes that sort of natural state that we have necessary. What's happened in society is that we've been sold, you know, and I've speak, spoken to a lot of our elders and and they actually, uh, some of them use the term like a, a spell was cast, you know, and, and we have a very spiritual component to this, that, that a spell was cast on these people to make them do these things that they wouldn't normally do or wouldn't do in their natural state. And I look at this spell as being, you know, again, like this, this, these, this false bill of goods. If you look back, on um, any way that a, that one group of people creates injustices or commits injustices on another group of people, it's based on on like Roshan said, a, a fiction. You can go back to England in areas where you know the elites, the aristocracy, or the monarchy wanted something from a group of their own people. You know, it would be considered their own people racially, 
And they would use the same tropes, the same sort of, you know, slurs against these people that they used against my people. Oh, they're drunks. They're lazy. They're non-industrious. They're stupid. They're like, you know, the, the, you know, what the, the God they fall, even though it's the same God isn't our God, you know, and they find different ways and avenues to poison that. It's like a cancer. And I, and I, and I use that term directly, like it is like a cancer because, you know, I, I don't want to get too broad in the sense, but it, you know, these views and these ideologies are, you know, pretty much a death knell for society and it kills its host eventually. It doesn't live in unity, this hierarchical sort of construct is just you know it's literally destroying our planet right now and you know and and causing all this uh mayhem but on a societal level it's just it's so destructive to the human soul i'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that i'm sure i've got a lot more to say but... <laughs> no no that's that's wonderful and so what about this idea about the role of justice in artistic production how does art production promote the cause of justice well I'll give you an example you know just to circle back there um this is our, uh, if you look at the back, I'm going to roll back in. And for those of you who obviously can't see, because it's a podcast, I'll explain it to you visually. Maybe you could send us the image and we can share that after. <laughs> sure, yeah. I don't know how well you can see that, but this is our double-headed golden eagle. It's a piece that I did for a show called Testify, which toured the country. And what it was is a, a sort of a marriage between artists and lawyers to talk about indigenous laws. Well, this is sort of the pinnacle of Seashot or Seashot law, where I'm from. And this figure represents almost everything that's good in us. So it's this larger than life, supernatural golden eagle. And it's like, when I say golden eagle, I don't mean like, you know, the, the, the actual like species or you know the type of eagle it is this thing is supernatural it's fiery it's like a thunderbird it's you know it's uh it just captures all your attention when it's flying through the sky but this thing you know could take out your whole community in one fell swoop it's very powerful but we would never see it that way this this image's whole being is based around bringing people together you know taking the best out of what everybody has to offer and making ourselves stronger. Right. Thank you for sharing all those rich thoughts. I want to switch it over to Roshan. Uh, so Roshan, you, you've worked on the forefront of law and policy in this country, including as legal counsel and advisor to former Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould. So what have you seen as some of the limits of law and politics in promoting justice? And following on Shane's remarks, how do you think that elements of culture can play a role in the establishment of justice? Well, just uh, before getting to the law and politics uh, question, just when Shane was speaking, you know, I was reminded of a, a description of violence that was uh, from Abdu'l-Bahá. He referred to violence as a fever in the world of the mind. Human violence is a fever in the world of the mind. And if you think about what a fever does uh, to the human body, right, it, it affects the entire human body at once. It makes everything unwell. It clouds out all of the feelings of wellness or the counter forces of wellness. It makes you race in a certain way, your heart, your organs, right? It puts them in a race with each other. And of course, it always puts you at the risk 
of not being able to get it under control and that it overheat and take over everything, right? And when Shane was talking about a spell being cast, right, or the the threat and fear that uh, in, is instilled in people when their worldviews and systems are challenged, right? Often the mind becomes overtaken like it has a, a fever in it. And sometimes that can go to the extremes. And this is what we've seen. And this is always the risk. And, you know, so Shane has you know, sort of brought a, the inner dimension of, you know, this issue of justice and, and social transformation into the discussion, the inner and spiritual dimension of it, that at its core, it also requires and necessitates, and in fact, only will succeed with some uh, elements of inner transformation taking place that allows and propels the external transformation. And that connects to the law and politics question, which, you know, I have a twofold answer to, because on the one hand, we should never denigrate or speak in a limited way about the degree of transformation of law and politics that's needed to affect the conditions of greater justice and unity and social transformation that we want to see. Law in Canadian history has been one of the primary tools of colonialism, one of the primary weapons of violence and uh, instilling racism. The, the, you know, remarkable reality that in Canada in 2021, the primary law that governs the life of First Nations peoples remains a 19th century statute that is segregationist, racist, has roots and reflections of apartheid laws in South Africa. That is the same law that gave rise to the residential schools that banned First Nations peoples from voting uh, until the 1960s. That law remains on the books. That remains the, the Indian Act. It remains the primary law that governs the life of First Nations people, that sets up the reserve system, takes away land, all of this. That is Canada in 2021. That remains the case. In fact, it, it, until uh, 24 months ago, you know, only in the last 24 months has Canada ever passed a law that speaks to trying to uphold Indigenous rights. In Canada, we still have the Indian Act. We still have the, the colonial law that set up the whole colonial system that has to be dismantled. And in the last few years, we've had a few laws passed, like around the Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples. But, you know, this is the tip of the iceberg of the legal and political change that is needed. So I never want to limit, like, complete transformation is needed of laws, policies, and practices in this country. Um, you know, but social change occurs always at three levels. It has to occur at three levels in order to truly manifest itself in social transformation. One is that we need change at the level of uh, meanings and mindsets. This is what Shane started to talk about. This is something that art in it as one form particularly reifies and gives ex expression to and puts out into the world and reinforces. So at our, at our level of our mental constructs and our associations, our ways of thinking, our mindsets, our worldviews, our shared connotations and understandings, 
So that's the level of social meanings and social understandings. You also need to affect social change. You need change at the level of social norms, how we interact and act and relate to each other. And this gets into human dynamics of love and empathy and interrelationship and care. And again, Shane talked about how human beings interact and they come together and violence versus patterns of love and, inter- and all of these things. And then you need change at the level of social forms. That's the arena of law and politics and decision-making and policy. The, the challenge in, is multiple. One is uh, the, the Eurocentric bias, of course, is to only focus on laws and policies. That's the, the nature of post-Enlightenment modernity and so forth, is to focus on that level. And focusing on that level without changes at the level of social meanings and social norms means you'll have very limited change at the level of social forms. They won't really take effect and you won't really transform. You have to have transformative work taking place at all three of those at once, at the level of meanings, norms, and forms. What we see in Canada right now is you have some degree of emergence, especially over the last decade, I would say, at the first level in the understandings, but we have a long way to go. You have, I think, um, some desire for people to change the way they relate and behave, but you don't really see an impulse in Canadian society that really the changes in relating and behaving that are needed require a fundamental reorganization of how we live our lives, of of economic and social and cultural relations. You don't see that. I mean, you can look at it, and you don't see it in relation to climate change either. Like you don't see it on the big questions that confront societies. We're not there. So at the level of laws and policies, we see a little bit but you n- neither see the understanding nor the will, the desire to act to do the big changes. So we have a lot of rhetorical, performative, political acts around reconciliation now. It's good politics now. It's good politics. And you see a lot of it, but you see very little knowledge of how to actually do what needs to be done. And you do not see the will often to carry it through because uh, that other factors and calculuses and more cynical ones come into play. So, you know, it's not so much about the limits of law and politics. Those have to be transformed, but it's the limits of what our legal and political structures are, have been willing or able to do at the current time, absent uh, more powerful shifts in meanings and norms. The last thing I'll say is, of course, these processes accelerate, right? Change accelerates. Change doesn't occur in some, a history accelerates, like it goes and it doesn't just meander up or meander towards something. It shoots and things can change and then things go, might level off and then things may change suddenly again. And so we've been, you know, so it's very fluid how things can unfold. And, you know, Shane and I talk about this a lot. It, ultimately, all of these efforts is about, uh, is the fundamental question posed to all of us is how much suffering will we collectively and individually endure to make the changes that have to be changed for the condition of humanity to improve in the, in the ways it must for survival and thriving of all human beings. It's how much will we suffer to get there? And the, this work, this ugly, hard, in the trenches work, the work that 
is upheld by artwork and story and indigenous law, as Shane talks about. All of that work is is about mitigating and, and shifting and pushing towards ways of making these changes that that will hopefully limit the suffering as much as possible, not just for indigenous peoples who've suffered far too much already, but for all of us, because we all collectively have vast changes that have to be made. Um, Thank you. Yeah, that's a phenomenally (laughs) challenging question. How much are we willing to suffer to get there? Um, And as you were speaking about these different levels of change and these little places where change needs to occur, I couldn't help but think of, of youth and children, right? You know, we, we look at the history, we look at who's been affected, and then we look, we're trying to work towards the future, and children and young people come into the picture in a very urgent way. So, Shane, I wanted to ask you about young people now, because I understand that you devote a great deal of your time to offering workshops to young people and sharing cultural teachings with at-risk youth and providing employment and training to urban Aboriginal youth. So can you talk about your inspiration for working with youth and the potential that you see in them to be champions of justice? You know, I know it, it sounds a little um, <laughs> maybe unoriginal, but the, the youth are our future. And, <laughs> you know, I think um, I've always been uh, drawn to just this energy that our, our youth has because there's the ability to be reborn, you know, in their eyes and and. And I'd hate to say it like, you know, I mean, I've, I've got two teenagers. Um, one's about to go to university next year, which I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of. But I look at transitions and, you know, and transformation. And it really gives me a lot of hope um, because my children have actually helped me to transform by looking at the world through their eyes and, you know, and their interactions with me and, and, and acknowledging my own biases that I've collected from my generation that they don't carry. That's the true meaning of why there's so much hope in that generation is because they don't carry that baggage, um, you know, and they can recognize injustice like you wouldn't believe and they see it. Yeah, they do. And this is why I'm so in our in our indigenous world, I'm so, you know, the meaning in the artwork has been lost and the teachings around the artwork has been lost. A lot of my work is just collaborating with other artists and, and you know, in every facet to try and recapture as much as we can so we can pass it on to these these young people as tools to do what they need to do, because I'm, I'm not going to be able to to do I had these, you know, silly notions when I was young that I would change the world and I would be part of this that would see it through and which is absolutely ridiculous and even in our teachings it's it's you know our seven generation teachings um you know that's not what we're meant to do we're meant to prepare our next generation for their work and it's not an end goal it's it's a way of being which actually I suffered from a lot of, uh, you know, and I'll be really honest, like I was very mentally unwell growing up and due to Roshan touched on it, I had an extremely abusive, you know, upbringing and, uh, you know, lived on the streets and and it was quite difficult and, and right up until, you know, into my 20s and even my 30s before I sort of started figuring things out with the help of a lot of, you know, spiritual and cultural people that helped me in just that way of giving me certain tools to help with and and our 
our job is to prepare the next generation while we're healing ourselves. So, you know, at the end of the day, I believe that, you know, we cannot find our own inner peace when we embrace the struggle and know that the struggle is never going to end. You know, it's, it's there. And, but the peace you find by embracing that struggle and knowing that you're going to wake up the next day and you're going to have to keep fighting. It's, 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 it's really quite beautiful. And I've seen a lot of people transform by acknowledging that uh, and getting back to the youth. They were, they're born into probably the biggest struggle that humanity may be facing, which is an existential threat to humanity. <laughs> you know, I feel for them and all I can do is try and prepare them for what they have to contend with. And knowing that the work that we're doing now, you know, maybe generations down the line may have that impact. You know, we may not be able to enjoy it, but, you know, maybe my children's children's children may be able to enjoy the work that we've started, you know, and if we can teach them to embrace the struggle, which is, let's face it, in our indigenous communities, that's our survival mechanism. That's how we survive. And a lot of us haven't survived because they've never found that peace. So I think a lot of our, our teachings to non-Indigenous society is, is just that, like it's time, you know, hopefully you'll embrace this struggle too and find some peace in that. And as Roshan was saying, I mean, you never know how, how societies are gonna react to these new variables. You know, I mean, we're at a stage right now where non-Indigenous people, I mean, it started out as sympathy, you know, and I've seen so many of my non, and I come from a non-Indigenous family as well. And, you know, I mean, we inspired sympathy in them. Like my family was really sorry for me. Oh, I had a tough upbringing. I was on the streets. I dealt with all this physical, mental, sexual abuse and, you know, and all you poor guy. And I can be really honest, these very same people are hurting so badly right now. And at family gatherings, I have these non-Indigenous, you know, family members coming up to me looking for answers. They know that what they've been following in the bill of goods that they've been sold is, is bankrupt, is, is morally, ethically, spiritually, there's a void there. And they're now reaching out because they've, they've found some truth in, in, you know, in our teachings, and I truly do believe, and I don't mean this to be, you know, you know, arrogant in any way, but I truly believe in our indigenous societies. We hold a part of the key to salvation, like, you know, in our teachings around unity within diversity, you know, there's a reason why Roshan and I are quite close and why I have a lot of respect for the Baha'i faith, especially coming from a tradition where we're not really big on religion, you know, to have a, a spiritual sort of direction uh, that is just so almost exactly on point with our own spiritual beliefs about, again, teachings around the golden eagle, bringing us together, taking the best of what everybody has to offer, taking care of the vulnerable, making ourselves stronger all together. Everybody has something to offer. People are reaching out around the world for these teachings. They know that what they've been sold is wrong. They know. And now we're at this moment of crisis where we are going to suffer. And I'm praying. I do. I, I pray every day about 
how we're going to reach that that goal and if society will change based on this suffering or whether or not these forces will manage to keep people blinkered and and you know blind to what the truths are that's the fight that's the conflict right now and 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 it's in our youth's hands i pray for them and you know and i'm going to give everything i can to make sure that they're equipped to to handle what they have to handle at least in my own sphere that's really beautiful. And thank you for sharing vulnerably your own personal experience as well. So I started the conversation today by referring to the centenary of the passing of Abdu'l-Baha, which the Baha'i community marked just last weekend. Canada has a special connection to Abdu'l-Baha through his visit to Montreal in 1912 and the letters he wrote to Canada in subsequent years. What is striking about his public statements and letters is the aspirations he held for a country during a pretty dark time in our history, especially when you consider the racism and xenophobia that included many aspects of Canadian society, including the system of Indian residential schools. So Abdu'l-Baha expressed the hope that Canada would lay the foundation of equality and spiritual brotherhood among mankind. So that was his aspiration for our country. What is your aspiration for the country and what gives you hope for the future? I'll start with Roshan. Well, you know, at, at one level, of course, uh, Canada as a country, like any nation state, is just a, a product of certain historical forces at a certain time. There's nothing permanent or real about it. It's something that's been constructed by the patterns of human history and uh, there's nothing permanent or necessary of any nation state. Uh, this is the rise and change and dynamic nature of, of human societies and patterns and how they evolve. So when I talk and think about the future of Canada specifically, I think of uh, a reality that when Canada uh, was formed, Indigenous people were left out. And that original sin renders Canada's reality um, always in need of a complete and utter reimagination. And for something to be called Canada to, to maintain itself in a way that is identifiable to us as Canada, it must completely reimagine and transform itself. The work that when we talk about whether everybody talks about whether it's reconciliation, resurgence, uh, whatever term we want to use, at the heart of it, it's the same thing. At the heart of this work is Indigenous nations rebuilding their systems of knowledge, of community, of governance, of law, and then proper relations grounded on nation-to-nation uh, -nation sovereign relationships between those entities and what we call Canada. That work of doing that, if it's done the way that is principled and is necessary to be done to alleviate and address and seek to uh, address the intergenerational realities of colonialism, racism, will transform and force a reimagining of what Canada is. So my hope lies in that work. That is what Canada requires to have any sort of future. 
and what that looks like as a country, I, I don't know. It's a reimagined, transformed reality where an original relationship that was unjust is being recast around indigenous peoples rebuilding on their terms, their nations and realities, and then reshaping the relationship based on indigenous people in the lead in that regard. That gives What gives me hope is that work is taking place. Nations are doing it at different levels. They're leading it. They're all at different levels. They do it diversely. They do it in at different paces. But that is where the solutions lie. That is where the future of the country lies. And that is where the hope for the country lies, um, is in that work and the relationships that it will transform. So that's where I take uh, the hope from it. Of course, the world as a whole needs more and more examples of societies transforming themselves, where the starting foundation of society is not an original sin of racist exclusion and colonial oppression, but it's trying to form proper relations, structured relations, respectful relations between distinct peoples and how they will interact and shape and govern and rule society together in ways that are, are workable and practical and principled. We do not have many examples of that in this world. That is what the world needs locally. That is what the world needs globally. Whatever the future of Canada is in that reality, it hinges and is based on how much we embrace and encourage and uphold that kind of work that Indigenous peoples are leading today. Thank you, Roshan. And Shane, what about you? What is your aspiration for the country and what gives you hope for the future? I feel very closely to how Roshan described it, that, that, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, we have this horrendous history and the, and the present's not that great either, but the, the direction and the possibilities within Canada, you know, I'm optimistic as to, to what we can do here. And, you know, there's this operational reality that we have to acknowledge that because of the adversarial nature that, you know, Occidental society is, has placed in in the world you know i mean we we really live in this international adversarial society whether it's economic military or or ideologically or otherwise i think the world is is reaching out right now for for examples you know much like my 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 family i mentioned i think there's people that are you know in countries and uh that are reaching out for examples of justice and and something that they would like to embody because nobody wants to live under an autocracy. So I have a lot of hope for Canada in the sense of like, we seem to be acknowledging a lot of, again, truths. And, you know, and as we acknowledge those truths, justice, it can't help but follow. The battle right now is how to get those truths, not only, um, you know, proliferated locally and nationally here to try and transform Canada, which is all we have to work with within the system. That's the operational reality. But to also export these stories somehow to the world so that we can start, you know, unifying other, you know, so-called liberal democracies into almost, you know, this this organic field. I mean, that's that's my hold and people want to believe those cousins of mine that are reaching out to me at family gatherings, they want to believe, you know, people around the world, they want to believe, they want something to believe. And they know that what they've, they've been sold is not 
you know, working. You know, I have a lot of hope. Uh, and Canada is my place to start. So this is where I work um, with the hopes that we can provide that example of, you know, all these beautiful, beautiful souls that are just devote their lives to justice. They provide an example. We will coalesce into a greater force. Yeah, there's there's a lot of beauty in this world. We just have to, you know, not lose faith and keep working. Thank you for that beautiful and hopeful image that you just painted. And thank you both for sharing all of your thoughts and valuable insights with us today. You've left us with lots to think about, about Canada's history, our challenges ahead, the power of truth, justice, art, transformation, love, and hope. So thank you again, Shane and Roshan. We are really grateful that you could join us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. You have been listening to The Public Discourse, a podcast by the Baha'i Community of Canada's Office of Public Affairs. You can learn more about the Baha'i faith at baha'i.ca and follow the work of our office at opa.baha'i.ca where you will find links to our social media handles on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube.